0: Uh, If you have your Bibles with you, turn over to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation 12, we're finishing our series called The Story, where we've been going through the major narratives of the Bible. Every time I come to Revelation, I remember the story that I've told often about Bishop Galvin Reed, who is in the UK, who's uh, making his hospital calls. And he comes by the room of this young 12-year-old boy, and he hears the 12-year-old boy say this. He says, God is fair. Now, Bishop Gavin Reed did not know the family nor the boy, but he knew the boy's story. And the boy's story was that he had fallen down the stairs at home, a long flight of stairs, and broken his back when he was six years old. And he spent the next six years, to the age of 12, his present age, surgery after surgery after surgery, in enormous, incredible pain for a young man. And Bishop Gavin Reed heard the boys tell his mother and his father, "'Look, Mom, look, Dad, God is fair.'" And Bishop Galvin Reed went into the hospital room and said, Young man, you don't know me, but I just heard what you said and I know your story. Can you please explain how you believe God is fair when you've spent half your life in pain? And the little boy looked up and said, Why, Bishop, God has all of eternity to make it up to me. Man, that's a great story. That's what the book of Revelation is about as we come to the end of the story, which is really the beginning. Revelation is a book that unveils, it opens to us, it lets us go into the spiritual heavens and open the window and have a look in at what God is doing now in the world and what he plans on doing in the future. Now look, I have got a lot to do I've had two Mountain Dews backstage. And you know what that you know what that means. Coupled with the caffeine. I got a lot of I'm gonna be talking so fast, faster than normal. I need you to hang on. Because here's the deal. Here's the deal. Revelation is a fantastic book. There are five words. I can't go through every chapter in one setting. I will tell you that I'm gonna do an entire series on the book of Revelation next year. So it is coming for sure. It'll be thirteen weeks. But for now, I got like what, thirty-five minutes to cover the book? That's impossible. Or is it? And so And so listen, there are five words I want to give you, but as I give you those five words, I want to give you the key to understanding because the reason Revelation is so misunderstood, and by the way, I have heard some of the most far-out wacky comments on a simple book in the Bible. You say simple, What's more simple than you know. For instance, G.K. Chesterton, one of my favorite authors, wrote this. He said, though John the Evangelist, he's the writer of the book of Revelation, saw many strange monsters in his vision, he saw no creature so wild as one of his own commentators. Do you get what he's saying? He said, do you think John had some visions? Some of the preachers and pastors who write commentaries on Revelation, they're the wild ones. They see things that he never intended to see. Now here's the reason why. What makes Revelation so susceptible to wild imagination? And it's going to help you understand what we do today because I'll give you one demonstration in Revelation 12. Is First of all, it's apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature by nature uses signs and symbols. So when you go through the Bible and you're trying to understand it, the rule of translation or hermeneutics or understanding the, trans, uh, the, uh, the translation or the rather the uh, application of scripture is that you look first to the literal and second uh, to the figurative. That's true of every other book except apocalyptic literature. You have some in the Old Testament and the New, about four or five books in the Bible. But when you come to Revelation, you're not looking for the literal first. You're looking for the figurative. That's what Revelation means. That's what apocalyptic literature means. It's a genre of literature that exists today and that existed back in the first century. So when you're looking at Revelation, you're looking for signs and symbols to communicate a vision, not literal, but a figurative vision that means to some overarching 40,000 feet view of what God is trying to communicate to the world. But not only is it apocalyptic literature, it's written in code. That's what revelation is. It's signs and symbols. The code is for the purpose of protecting the Christians around AD 70 when John writes the book. Because at the present time, there is a widespread Roman policy of persecution. So the Romans are trying to kill all the Christians. So John wants to write these letters encouraging them because these are people who are experiencing mourning, crying, and pain, and death. So he wants to encourage them, so he writes in code so that when they receive it, they'll get it. But if a Roman persecutor would read the passage or read the letter, they wouldn't understand what was going on and it would protect the Christian. But not only that, is it written in code? It's written for us, but not to us. That's why Revelation gets misunderstood so often. Sometimes I'll listen to a preacher or read a commentary and they'll talk about Russian helicopters. And I'm thinking, what? Think about it, this is not written to us, it's written for us. It's written to the first century church to encourage them. Now we're going to get incredible spiritual food out of it. And we're going to be challenged and we're going to be encouraged. But when you read it, you've got to read it with first century eyes. And the code is able to be broken. All you have to do is have an Old Testament knowledge. Because there is not one symbol that's used in the book of Revelation doesn't come directly from the Old Testament. So if you understand the Old Testament well and the signs and symbols used there, you're going to be able to go to Revelation and you're going to be able to understand it. As long as you keep in mind that it was written for the first century. It was written to them and it was written for us. And so there are valuable lessons to learn. The primary uh, position that I take in the book of Revelation is that most views of Revelation that you hear today come out of the 17th century or after. But the oldest way to understand the book of Revelation is called the cyclical approach. We find this all the way back to the third century. That's a long time ago. And the cyclical approach is just this. Now stay with me. This is a teaching moment, and then we'll get into the preaching stuff, okay? Here's Here's the cyclical approach. The cyclical approach says that the writer in apocalyptic literature will set the stage with signs and symbols and all kinds of metaphors to communicate a message. And then after he's communicated the message, he will wipe the stage clean and put a whole nother different of signs and symbols and metaphors to communicate the very same message that the first scene communicated. So he's going to communicate the same message six times in Revelation and then the seventh and the end will come. You with me? So example is like Joseph had two dreams that were different, yet they meant the same thing. Pharaoh had two dreams, they were different, but they meant the same thing. So the book of Revelation is simply this. Six different scenes with totally different characters and signs and symbols, but they all communicate the same thing. Six scenes in a play communicating until the seventh, but the important, most important key of all in understanding revelation, stay with me now, is that all of history has been viewed by the cyclical approach and also by Old Testament scholars and Old Testament writers. All of history is viewed in terms of seven years. That is, God created Three and a half years, he sent his son to establish his kingdom, and three and a half years later, he will return. Now, this isn't a literal three and a half years, is it? It's just all of human history is symbolized in three and a half to seven years. And so when you come across terms, and you will in the book of Revelation, 1260 days, guess how many years that is? Three and a half. And then you'll read 42 months. Guess how long that is? Three and a half years. And you'll have time, times and half a time. One year, two years, three years and half. So Three and a half years. So that the book of Revelation is simply trying to describe to you the things that will happen from the time Jesus established his kingdom till the time he returns. So it's six scenes ending in the seventh one with what will happen by the time Jesus establishes his kingdom on the earth and the time he returns. It's a beautiful thing. So Revelation kind of becomes unlocked when you understand that these terms are all referring to that the book of Revelation is not primarily about this time, but the book of Revelation is about this time. What can you and I expect to happen in the world during the time of Jesus' kingdom ruling right here on earth in your and my hearts. Now, there's some numbers as well. When you see the number two, it's talking about the ambassadors of God. They always went out two by two in the book of Acts. When you see the number 12, you know it's always about the people of God, 12 apostles, 12 disciples, 12 tribes of Israel. The number seven is always for perfection. The number six, that's why the mark of the beast is 666. 666. It's reemphasizing the lack of perfection. That's the world of evil or evilness. And then God's number is seven, the number of perfection. He does what he does and he does it well. And 10 is the number for completion. So every time you see those numbers, every time you see these, you know the revelation is talking about the time and those events that will happen between the time Jesus establishes his kingdom and the time he returns. And when you see these numbers, you know that God is trying to give a message. An example quickly. I know I'm going fast. I know I'm going fast. Just stay with me for a second. This is a teaching time. And like I said, two dot Mountain Dews and sugar. Stay with me. A good example is the number 144,000. Because we're in Revelation, we're not looking for a specific literal number of 144,000. We're looking for what that number might symbolize. And as you look at 144,000 and those of you who have not read Revelation, those are the number of people that are supposed to make it into the kingdom, right? Well, it's a symbolic number because it uses the number 12 and the number 10 as multiples. 144,000, you need 12s and you need 10s. So it basically is trying to tell you that all the people of God will go to heaven. It's that simple. And when you start to look at it like that and start, well, who are the 144,000? I gotta find them. Well, it's all the people of God. Now, the most important thing, however, about revelation, remember we're trying to do this in one message, is that there are five power words. Last words are important and revelation is the last word of God to man. Not the last, last, but in his revelation or in what we call the canon of scripture. And I want you to know what these words are. And here's the thing, as I take you through them, it's supposed to culminate or climax in the fifth word. And when you hear that fifth word, folks, you're supposed to have a life change. There's supposed to be something that you get, all of a sudden your eyes are open, you're supposed to have a spiritual awakening, whereby you say, man, if these things are true... Dude, i got to change my life. i got to live differently than I've ever been living. Because I know this truth now, I can no longer live the way I've been living in the past. I've got to change for the future. And I want to take you through those words. They're all in Revelation. They are the five catchwords of the book of Revelation. And then right halfway through the sermon, which you think has already arrived, but it hasn't, I'm going to take you through Revelation 12 just quickly to give you a demonstration of one of those stages that have been set and what God wants to communicate to us. So here's the first word. The word is truth. Say it on the count of three. One, two, three. Truth. One more time. One, two, three. Truth. The Bible says in Revelation chapter 1, verse 14, as we're introduced to the Ancient of Days, this is the Messiah. This is the Christ that the hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. This is a symbolism to say that, you know, like Superman can kind of penetrate your clothing, which is scary as you get older, isn't it? But this is the real Superman, and the God-man, Jesus Christ, the Ancient of Days, is able not only to penetrate past your clothing, but penetrate into the soul. And he knows truly what you've been living your life for. You can say what you want to say, and you can make people think one thing about you, but the reality is the day is going to come when truth is going to reign, And God is gonna look into your life and he's gonna know whether you're living for the kingdom of God or whether you're living for yourself. You won't be able to hide it. The day will come. I used to have this friend in New Zealand when we pastored there. Her name was Susan. Susan committed what I call bibliolatry. Now here's what bibliolatry is. It's where you know your Bible back to front. I mean, you could win a Bible bowl contest and you could probably win a debate with most pastors. But the problem is the words of the Bible have never made it into your life. It's all head knowledge and there's no change. There's no power. And so one day I took Susan out. I said, Susan, we got to talk because I noticed she loved to debate and she loved to argue scripture. And I said, look, I know you got the scripture in you, but it's making no difference in your life. You still have a bad temper. You still gossip. You still slander. Dude, what's going on? And I said, walk me through every day of your life. And here's what she did. She says, well, I start with a Bible study. Well, shocker surprise there. I said, what do you do after that? Then after the Bible study, it's like everything she did was for her own self-aggrandizement. It's about having friends and frolicking and having parties and doing whatever she wanted to do to make herself feel better. And I said, look, do you not see that there's nothing in your life? We've been over every day, every week, every month, and there's nothing in your life to show me that you're investing in anything outside yourself. You know the Bible well, but if it was really changing you, you would not live for you. You would live for a purpose greater than yourself. Do you know the Bible actually says in 2 Timothy 3? It says, In the last days, people will be lovers of money, lovers of themselves, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. So you can look all godly, and you can carry your Bible, and you can pray, and God's Spirit not be in you. So the ultimate question is, What are you living your life for, really? I know what you say. And I know what I say, but what are you truly living for? If I followed you around and I see the way you spend your time and your money and your talents, what would I notice? Are you building your kingdom or God's? The Bible says in Revelation that one day the truth is going to come out and this eyes of fire in the ancient of days is going to look through you and you're going to know and God's going to know and all of humanity is going to know what you really lived your life for. Building bigger barns, eat, drinking, and being merry, or are you living for the kingdom of God and it's expansion. Is that what fires you up? Is that what makes the blood go through your veins? Does that get your heart pumping? And one day everyone will know. Say it with me, number one, truth, truth. Number two, justice, justice. You ever been to Dodger Stadium? Have you ever been to Dodger Stadium when the umpires made a bad call? First time I went to Dodger Stadium, the umpire made a bad call and it cost the Dodgers a run. Man, the animosity and anger that was coming from the stadium, especially out in right Field. It was like, kill the umpire. I mean, when the umpire makes a bad call and and they feel like an injustice has been done, it's not simply maim the umpire or torture the umpire. Only one thing will suffice, death. (laughs) We protest unfairness and we want justice in every area of life. I was just reading another article that I'd saved, from that's probably 10 years ago, but it was about a man that lived right here in LA. By the way, the article was in the LA Times, if you want to Google it. It's about a man by the name of Mr. Hagler Mr. Heckler drives a red sports car and he was driving down the 210, coming this way between uh, Claremont and San Dimas. And As he's driving on the 210, he's just going with the flow of traffic. And On this particular day, it tended to be around 75 miles per hour. Now, I know none of you would ever speed in my congregation or in God's church. You would never speed, but you would keep up with the traffic, wouldn't you? If everybody's going 75, you're going 75 too. So Mr. Hagler gets pulled over by a police officer and he explains to the police officer, look, I got a perfect driving record and you're about to ruin it. And the police officer said, no, you're about to ruin it. And he said, but wait a minute, I was just going with the flow of traffic. I was not going faster or slower than anybody else, but I feel like you've targeted me just because I have a red sports car and I think this is unfair. And I'm begging you, just let me off with a warning. I promise you, I'm usually a safe driver. I've got a perfect driving record. I will drive safely from here on out. And the police officer wouldn't have nothing to do with it. And he said, no, I'm sorry, I'm gonna have to write you a ticket. It's like 280 bucks or something ridiculous." 10 years ago now the story goes on to say that the uh mr Hagler, who drove the red sports car true story three months later was in colorado and he was umpiring a softball game and guess who came to bat this highway trooper and their eyes looked at each other they immediately recognized each other and the highway trooper kind of looked at him, the umpire and he said uh, hey uh, how, how'd the thing with that ticket work out And man, Mr. Hagler took off his umpire mask and he spat tobacco juice on the ground, looked him right in the eye and said, you better swing at everything. (laughs) True story. Revenge is sweet, man. Revenge is sweet. That's why Arnold Schwarzenegger movies did so well, because he'll be back and we want somebody to come back. Now on on a less humorous note, folks, our world is just not fair. It's not. And we know it. We know there's something wrong. This is a world where children are stolen, sold, and enslaved in the sex trade. And they're asked to perform sexual acts 20 to 40 times a day. We live in a world where human trafficking is a growing epidemic. There are more slaves on planet earth today than there's ever been, and 5.5 million of them are children. Sri Lanka, Thailand, and Brazil are the top three countries in the world for child prostitution. Guess what country's number four? The United States of America. Do you know that Orange County is the gathering place and the dispersion place of child pornography? Did you know that? And of child trafficking. So one of the most wealthy counties in the world. For much of those young children, it begins right down there. Then there are the Robert Mugabe's of the world who enslave his people. There's ISIS. There's Saddam Hussein's. There's the Taliban, the Al-Qaeda's. People and organizations have little or no respect or concern for human life The mistake most people make is this. You think, we think that delayed justice is the same thing as no justice. But the Bible says one day justice is going to roll like a river. That every man and woman is going to stand before God and give an account for the way they've lived their lives. And these eyes of fire that penetrate into the soul is going to know the life you lived. As a matter of fact, folks, in the book of Revelation, there are two words translated wrath. You've got orge and thumos. These words penetrate the book of Revelation, but they're very different words. Orge is the kind of wrath that God has right now. It's a wrath that God just lets it build up because he's patient right now because it is not his will that any man should perish, but all should have everlasting life. So God has this incredible patience with humanity, but it's festering and it's boiling. And one day it moves from Orgate to Thumos. Thumos is the word for an explosive volcano. One day the wrath of God is going to be suppressed long enough and it's going to come out and justice is going to roll like a river. Just because things aren't happening now doesn't mean justice isn't going to happen in the future. And the Bible says that one day truth will shine like the sun and that justice will roll like a river. And he's going to look into your life and my life. Will justice roll in our lives? Absolutely. No individual is immune. Say it with me. Number one, trust. Number two, justice. Number three, and this is where it gets interesting, salvation and persecution. Persecution salvation and persecution. The reason I put those together is because they are inextricably tied together. You can't have one without the other. Now, here's what I want to do. Take a deep breath, everybody, so I can. And here we go. Revelation 12, we come to one of those plays, one of those sets on the stage that's attempting to describe the types of things that are going to happen between the time Jesus established his kingdom till the time he returns. 1260 days, 42 months, time, times, and half a time. And we're introduced to this woman who is clothed with the sun and the moon is under her feet. And it's a beautiful portrait because we've got 12 stars garlanded in her head. Now we know from the symbols in the Old Testament that the sun and the moon represent glory and majesty. So this is a good person. This This is a good guy. And the 12 stars is a giveaway. This is something to do with the people of God. Whether it be Israel or the church or whatever, but this is the people of God. And the Bible says the woman is about to give birth. And as the woman is about to give birth, there is a fiery red dragon that we're introduced to. And the red represents blood and destruction, so this is a bad guy. And we're told that the dragon has seven heads, which is authority. Anytime you see seven, you've got what? Perfection. So this is a perfect authority somewhere. Maybe not in the universe, but the Bible does say he is the prince of the power of the air, that you and I are children of God, but the whole world lies in the power or control or the sway of the evil one. So he has seven heads of authority and he has Ten horns, which is another symbol of authority. So this guy, whoever he is, got a lot of authority and a lot of power, and he wears the diadem crown. Now, the Christians wear the Stephanos crowns, and sometimes they will wear the crown of authority, the diadem crowns. But the bad guys, they never wear Stephanos crowns. That's the crown of martyrdom for the sake of the cause of Christ. The bad guys always wear the diadem. And so we're told that this dragon, this fiery red dragon, is waiting to devour the child that the woman is going to deliver. But the Bible says it's beautiful that this dragon is the one that took his tail and he flung a third of the stars out of the heavens. And that's language right out of Isaiah chapter 12 through 14. The devil at one point was Lucifer, the morning star, and he had free will just like everybody else to reject or to go with God. And he rejected God and tried to usurp his authority. And the Bible says he took a third of the ministering servants with him and he's plunged to the earth. It's that entity that tried to kill the Messiah as the woman gives birth to the son, doesn't that sound like a good Christmas story? Well, a bad one, but it sounds like the Christmas story you know, where Herod has a policy of persecution for every two-year-old child and younger. The Bible goes on to say that the beauty of it is, even though the serpent, even though he tries to kill and destroy the child, that God took the woman and put her out in the wilderness and protected her for how long? Twelve sixty days. How long? The entire time between the time Jesus set up his church and the time he returns, the Bible says God will never let the gates of Hades prevail against his church. The dragon may pursue. You may lose some of the battles in your life, but you will never lose the war. And the church may have times when it looks down and out, but it will always conquer. And one day it will shine like the stars in the sky. And God will be our God and we will be his people. And then the story moves on and says and introduces us to now there was battle in heavens. There's Michael and the archangel and he fought the devil and the dragon and his angels. And Michael won. And it goes on to say it's a great story because when Michael won, something beautiful happened. That the devil was cast down out of heaven. You go back to the book of Job and you read where the devil had it placed in heaven at one point to accuse us before God. Because grace had not yet come. But now when Jesus died on the cross and the son was protected and he was whisked away to the father through the ascension, that he now sits at the right hand of the father and what Satan once had as a chair or a place before God has been removed. And now you and I have overcome, not because of our good works, but because what? The blood of the lamb. Doesn't that inspire you to know that you're going to be right with God, not because of anything good that you've done, not because of how much Bible reading you do, how many times you went to church, but one day you're going to stand before God the Father, and he's going to have the gavel, and he's like the judge, and I've had this dream before when I was smaller, and probably because I read too much C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, but I remember just kind of standing before God and he's the judge and I'm about to be condemned because I know who I am. It's a scary thought to know that one day those eyes of fire will reveal every work of man, isn't it? That you'll stand before God and it's like a, it's like a fast forward video, just shows you all the things in your life. And then the va- gavel's about to come down because justice is going to roll like a river. And then your lawyer steps up and who is it? It's Jesus. He takes you by the arm. And he says, oh, he's with me. And then you sprint. (laughs) And you walk on into heaven. The Bible says in Revelation 12 that we overcame the dragon, not because you were good, not because you were strong. You overcame him by the blood of the lamb, and what has been given to you by God can be taken away by no man. Do you understand that, including the dragon? Then we move to the last scene. And the Bible says the dragon is ticked. I love it when the dragon is ticked. And he is thrown down. And so now he turns his attention toward the woman. Now that's why I believe the woman represents two things. In apocalyptic literature, you can have two meanings in one symbol. I believe one, it represents Mary and what happens when Mary gave birth to the Messiah. But also it represents the church because the church is the one God is protecting for 1260 days. For three and a half years. The entire time that Jesus set up his kingdom till the time he returns. And the evil one goes down to planet earth. The Bible says, Oh, woe to those, woe to those inhabitants, because now he turns his attention on the church. But the Bible says, as he pursues her, he gives the church two wings. Right out of the Old Testament, wings of preservation, wings of safety. And she flies away and she's protected by God that he may tried to destroy her, but he never will. And then he gets upset and frustrated. So he opens up a torrent of flood, floods and famines and earthquake that, that just represents earthly calamity all through revelation. And those calamities are going to exist throughout human history until God puts a stop to it. But the devil is even behind some of those as he tries to destroy the church physically and spiritually. But what does God do? But open up the earth and swallow up the flood and the church prevails. Now, the reason this is such a good story is because it reminds us of a couple things. And stay with me now that the stage has been set and the play is very simple. Salvation is here. You you understand that, right? No need to fear the dragon. Man, you're in the church. You're among the people of God. And there's power in your life. And no matter what happens from this day forward, no matter how much confusing it gets, you are safe with God. And the church may have weak moments, but it will always thrive somewhere in the world as it's doing right now in the Southern Hemisphere. You heard me say that for the first time in world history, there are more Christians in the Southern Hemisphere than in the Northern. The church will always move its center, but it will always be alive. And if one nation rejects it, it will move to another because the church will never die. He says, we triumphed by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life so much as to shrink from death. But it also tells me, as I look at this, that persecution is imminent. Now, stay with me. This is my last point, and we're going to finish this. So, do I have you? All right. The Mountain Dew is wearing off now. So, please. Stay. This is the important. This is a climactic point. You and I may not be persecuted like my friends in India, the pastors I told you about in the city of Damone. We may not be dipped in hydrochloric acid. You know, we may not be beaten with iron rods, or our families are raped. And when you say that persecution, some people will say to me, well, you know, the Great Tribulation is not here. Try telling that to pastors in India. It's amazing when I hear interpretations and translations of Revelation how much America's involved. Think we have a vested interest? I don't think the people in the first century knew what America was at that time, do you? There are types of things that are going to happen all across the world in every generation. And if you came here and you're looking for an easy life, you came to the wrong place. Because the Bible clearly says that you and I are being pursued. In some ways, folks, it's better now listen, in some ways it's better not to become a Christian. Now, what? Once you give your life to Christ, you've got a target on your head. And there is one who's going to pursue you. And so we ought not live like we're surprised when things don't go well. We ought not live like, you know, why is it that every time I get serious about my devotion that the phone rings? You think that's accidental? Why is it every time I overcome one temptation another one rears its ugly head? Oh, what a coincidence. Why is it that every time you get serious about overcoming any addiction that another one pops up? Or any temptation that another one comes? Do you ever have times where you're like, man, it almost feels like that there's somebody in this world out to steal me of my joy. And the reason it feels like that is because there's somebody who in this world trying to steal your joy. The Bible says, Jesus said himself in John 10, 10, the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Listen, the battle is going to be constant. And if you came looking for an easy life, you're not going to get it. But if you came and you're looking for the God of all power, And the Lord, the Lamb of God, who has authority over every area of your life, if you came looking for someone to give you power and wisdom and courage to overcome any addiction you ever engage in, to overcome any affliction, to overcome any anger issue, frustration, depression, whatever it is, if you came looking for that, man, you came to the right place. He is the Lamb of God. He is the first and the last. And he will give you power over anything in your life. We don't fear the devil. We don't even give him the time of day. We go on with our lives knowing that God came to give us life and have it to the full. But there's a metaphor here that's very powerful. And it's the metaphor of movement. Notice, the Bible says that when the devil heard or the devil was kicked out and lost his place because of the blood of the lamb, that he pursues the woman. It's a metaphor of movement all through revelation. That first of all, He tries to snatch, he tries to destroy her, but God provides wings, so she's moving. Why did I just think of a Red Bull commercial? (laughs) Wings so you can fly. And then the floods come, and God swallows the water up in the earth, and the woman flees. It's a metaphor of movement. Here's what the early Christians understood that so many of us do not. As long as you're moving, you're going to be okay. But when your Christian life becomes stagnant, and you stop moving, and you stop swimming against the tide, and you stop walking against the grain, and you stop reading your Bible, and you stop praying, and you stop being a person of generosity, and you stop giving and living your life for a purpose greater than yourself, at that point, you become stagnant, and that's when you're most vulnerable. You're a sitting duck, and that's when the devil can come in, and he can catch you, but don't worry. If you're caught right now, you may lose a battle, but you won't lose the war, because you're made right by God, not on how well you do, but on how well Christ did, and he did what he did very well. You're overcoming him by the blood of the lamb. But if you, listen, it's the difference between knowing that your life is in the hands of God and being apathetic and having a cavalier attitude toward pursuit of God. And if you're apathetic and you have a cavalier attitude, and even if you're engaged in bibliolatry, if you're engaged in that, either way, If you're standing still, you may be saved, but your life will stink because you'll constantly be fighting against the evil one rather than enjoying the one that wants to give you every good thing. It's the metaphor of movement. Billy Sunday was a famous preacher in Europe and the story's told when he was in London preaching day after day, week after week, that a young girl started taking notice and the young girl walked up to Billy Sunday and said, sir, why do you continue to preach when no one's listening? I love his response. He said, well, at first I spoke and I preached in hopes that someone would be changed, but now I keep preaching to make sure that they don't change me. You've got to keep moving. You've got to keep praying. You've got to keep searching. You've got to keep moving toward God. Now, say it with me. Here we go. Number one, truth, truth. Number two, justice, justice. Number three, salvation and persecution. Salvation and persecution. And number four, and this is the, this is the end, hope. Now, listen, When we do our series on Revelation, man, I got five minutes to do this. That's like I mean, what what is that? Where does the time go? Right? This is when you say, yeah, Pastor Jeff, it just seems like you've been there five minutes. That's when you say that right now. (laughs) You got to hang on tight because when we do our series in Revelation, I'm actually going to spend two weeks on this one passage alone. But hope is what ultimately Revelation is about. And if you get this in the next five minutes, if you get this, you will have a life-defining moment. You will say to yourself, I cannot go on the way I've been going. i got to make a change. Because here's what the Bible says in Revelation. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Now look at something. The word Greek word for new is not the word for brand new. It is the word for renewed. Those are two different words. Not brand new, but renewed. The Bible seems to teach this. Now stay with me. i got to shoot from the hip here, guys. So good luck at the media center. i got to go from the hip. Here's the deal. The Bible says... That one day we're going to be called up into the air to meet him. And God is going to put a big ribbon around planet earth. And it's going to say, closed for renovations. The problem we have is we think heaven is some place way out there somewhere. Eerie, fairy place. And we're all going to be flying around like angels. You're never going to be an angel. No matter what your daddy told you, little honey. You might be a little angel here. You're never going to be an angel. You understand? You're never going to be... A What you're going to be is you're going to be given a glorified body that is conducive and works together with a glorified earth. Remember what happens? Jesus says, when you pray, pray what? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Up there is going to come down here. It's a renewed. And some of the best blessings you have in your life right now are just a foreshadowing. It's a down payment of what will one day be. That's why in Romans 8, the Bible says, as the apostle Paul gives creation. He personifies it. It becomes a a personhood. And he says, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. What does he mean? He means that the creation is like you and me. You ever cry out for a new body? Anybody? Anybody? Well, let me tell you, I just turned 50 every day. Everything is moving south just fast. God, where's my new body? He says, in the same way you do that, the earth says, where's our new body, our new earth? Where's the earth that was once meant to work consistently with humanity so that they would see the goodness in planet Earth, the goodness in the universe and praise and worship God. And there'd be no hindrance between them and God and the universe and the new heaven and new earth will work consistently and agreeably with humanity. And Paul says that's gonna happen. Back Back to Revelation, there's a new heaven and a new earth and it says there's a new city, Jerusalem, doing what? Coming down. Is it going up? It's coming down. And then it says, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. God's dwelling place is now among the people. He is with us. He is upon us. And they will be his people. God will be their God. There will be no more crying or death or mourning or pain for the old order of things has passed away. You have to remember that John wrote this to a generation of Christians who were experiencing death, crying, mourning, and pain because of Domitian's policy of persecution the Christians, their homes were being plundered. Think about this. When John writes this, you've got an entire group of Christians being led into the arena to be torn apart by wild beasts as the crowd looked on. You've got Christians who were being impaled on stakes. While they were still alive, they covered them in pitch and lit them on fire. And Rome crucified thousands and thousands, and placed their bodies along the roads in and out of Rome so that you would see what happens to the Christians. And John, how did he encourage a group of Christians facing this by telling them that one day this earth is going to change and the old order of things is gone? And it worked. Historically speaking, we know that it worked because they began to die noble deaths. They began to sing hymns as they were being torn apart by the wild beast because they had a future hope. They didn't say when their lives experienced turmoil, why has God abandoned us? They say, how is God gonna use this to expand his kingdom here on the earth? And the early church father, Tertullian, by the third century, talks about how the church grew, that great phenomenon that it was planted by the doctrine of the apostles, by truth, but it was watered plentiful by the blood of the saints. The more the saints died, the heavier and more intense the church grew. Now, this is the end. One day, this is going to change. There's going to be no more racism, no more abuse, no more human trafficking, no more depression, no more anxiety, no more hunger, no more genocide, no more death, no more concentration camps, no more the powerful and the rich abusing the poor and the weak. But the overarching point of Revelation, the thing that should make you have a life-changing moment is this. We are human creatures and the way you live now will be greatly determined by what you truly believe about the future. The way you deal with difficult times in your life right now has a lot to do with what you truly believe about the future. Not what you say you believe, what you truly believe. The way you respond to difficult times, the reason so many of us are so whiny and grumpy and complaining and moody is because You say you believe in the world is to come, but somewhere inside you, you've got this battle going on where you think maybe this is it. Viktor Frankl wrote a book called The Search for Meaning that John Brainerd, the chairman of our Board of Elders, gave me a few years ago. Couldn't put it down. He talks about two situations. There's a man who finds out while he's in a war camp, while he's in a concentration camp, that his family, his wife and children have been killed. There's another man who discovers that his wife and children are still living. Which one do you think possessed the largest, greatest, most intense drive to stay alive and to endure the concentration camp? The one who knew and had the hope that one day of being restored with his wife and children. There's a phenomenon in New Zealand. They've studied behavior patterns in New Zealand on the workplace. And New Zealanders take off work beginning December 15th. And they don't come back till January 15th. Businesses just closed down. I mean, seriously, they just closed down and people are off for a month. It doesn't even count against your vacation time, it's called just the holiday time. God bless those Kiwis, man. (laughs) Wouldn't it be great if your boss said, hey, take the next month off, I'll see you January 15th? But there was a behavior pattern, and I've used this before. They've noticed that from from December 1 to December 15th, the attitude, and joy in the workplace is overwhelming. Can't even be compared with the rest of the year. Why? Why do you think that is? Because no matter what happens to you, you're thinking, hey, do what you want, boss. Say what you want, coworker. You can gossip all you want. But in 14 days, I'm out of here and I ain't going to see you for a month. <laughs> How much more than we should not we be able to say, world, throw at me what you want. Dragon, bring at me what you want because you're going to lose. And I'm going to win. And someday in eternity, my life on this earth is going to look like a little dot on a screen. When I'm going to spend billions and billions in immeasurable time in the new earth, the new heavens. And God is going to be with me. And we will be his people and he will be our God. Yogi Berra said the future ain't what it used to be. The Christians believed it looked better than ever before. Say it with me. Truth is real. Say it. Truth is real. Salvation is here. Justice will roll like a river. Hope will become a reality. So keep praying. Keep serving. Keep loving. Keep forgiving. Keep living your life for a purpose greater than yourself. Don't let the world suck you into its flow. Keep swimming against the grain. Keep going upstream. And be patient. And trust Him and be faithful because those who endure will receive the crown of life. Amen? Father, I thank you for your goodness. I thank you for the power of Revelation 12 and a story that should remind us that, man, we have been made right. We have been rescued. We are protected by the blood of the lamb, not by our own good doing or our own good works, but because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. For reminding us that you gave up your son so that you would not lose us. And now all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And we may lose some battles along the way, but we have already won the war. Help us to live as though victory is already a reality. Help us to remember that Jesus is our Savior. And by the blood of the Lamb, we shall overcome. Not only then, but we can overcome now to live our lives in the present as if we truly believe that in the future your kingdom come, your will will be done on this earth it is as it has been done in heaven from the foundations of the world. Father, I thank you and give us a possess, a power, a drivenness to keep on keeping on. And one day, up there, we'll come down here and we will rejoice forever. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen.